But if you're doing something like strength wise and you, you, you know, you're, you're looking for um, force production or energy production um, or elastic energy return and you're just throwing an aqua bag in there and the force production or the, the bounce in a hop or something like that suffers because the aqua bag is there, then yeah, what's, what's the point of it? Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. So anyone that listened to the John Pryor episode from a couple of weeks ago will have heard a certain person's name mentioned a lot in very high regard, and that was Lee Egger. So Lee is also a big proponent of Franz Bosch's methods and is head of performance at Feyenoord Rotterdam. Now, in this episode, we dive into some of the same topics that we spoke to with spoke with John Pryor about, but we go into a lot more depth. And like John said, Lee is superb at implementing Franz Bosch's methods. So like I say, we dive into a lot of the same things as we did with John, but in a lot more detail. So the importance of hip lock, what people get wrong when using aquabags. So some really interesting topics and there's there's tons of things to take away from this from a speed perspective and a change of, change of direction and agility perspective and that transfer from gym and weight room to the field, but also maximizing our time on the field with our athletes and thinking a little bit differently from the norm. So this is a superb episode with Lee. Hope you enjoy and I'll chat to you soon. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics Force Plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating Force Plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics Force Plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And this episode of the podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU. iMeasureU is used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool, which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. IMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer-life battery to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions, and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicom, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, the US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with Lee Egger. Lee, thanks for joining me on the Pace Performance Podcast. I think it was, well, I know it was, John Pryor that stitched you up, mentioning your name, saying that I just talked to talk to you. So uh, apologies for stalking you, but it's great to get you on. No, it's a pleasure to be here, mate. And um, no, it's always good to to listen to some of the esteemed guests you have, apart from JP, of course. <laughs> but um, it's, a, it's a good stitch up as far as stitch ups go from him. Good man. So I hear that, and this is from JP as well, that... A, a, set, a fellow central defender is that right <laughs> me and you yeah, yeah exactly yeah. exactly wannabes so, wa- yeah <laughs> yeah exactly wannabes correct in my yeah. in my uh in my twitter bio it's failed footballer so we'll, I'll, I'll stick <laughs> with the failed bit but yeah like so, you, so you were um did you get very far in your career what was the what was the deal with the with the football career um that's how i met jp actually i 
I was um, looking as a youth player in Australia in the system to you know, beef myself up physically to, to play the game. And I always wanted to be a, a professional full-time footballer. Obviously, in Australia, you have like many shared interests in terms of sport. So you got like the rugby codes, AFL, football's in there, basketball, you know, all the above. So um, it's not exactly what European football is and, and the opportunities and the, the resources and stuff that go to it. But um, yeah, I, I was playing semi-professional up until like, yeah, two and a half, three years ago and um, getting a little bit of money for it. But yeah, it wasn't paying the full-time wages. And um, when I look back on my playing time, like I absolutely love the game. I still do. I still miss playing. Um, I probably wasn't like the most physically gifted or like I wouldn't do, you know, amazing things. Um, but I'm proud of like the work ethic that I had and the discipline that I had through meeting people at JP and um, other trainers and stuff like that when I was younger that sort of instilled that in me because I was never I was never handed anything. I always had to fight for things in terms of talent and physical attributes and stuff like that. So I made uh, JP always said I squeezed the lemon as hard as I could to get the <laughs> get the performance juice out of me and I just kept squeezing and kept squeezing. But yeah, through those lessons that's 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 why I am where I am now in terms of um, working in sports and and um, yeah those experiences have shaped me a little bit. So uh, I'm proud of my time and I still got a little bit of technique to, to show some of the lads I like to think. So I hope you're the same. Yeah. Do you think that helps? 100%. Yeah. yeah no. 100%. I mean, like, uh, it's also, it's not like a prerequisite. I think also, um, like, people who come from outside football, also, like, JP is a good example again. Like, they bring massive value in terms of their insights from other sports and how those those sports prepare and how they train and, and different training cultures and stuff like that but yeah on the field and in sessions and in the gym and stuff like this from a personal bias point of view like the feeling that you have from training to prep yourself before games to to you know build up your physical attributes like mentally preparing being on the field kicking a ball knowing what it feels like in certain sessions and having certain injuries for me, that experience is invaluable because I know how it feels pretty much to get every injury from head to toe um, and also to build your way back and also to try to improve your performance. So um, I would think, or I would hope, let's say, I have some, um, I have a, a unique um, perspective when it comes to um, performance, rehab and football in particular. So working in football, I feel, I feel in my element. Yeah, I think... It often gets looked down upon from maybe people outside or who haven't gone through a or had a career like you have as a as a player. It gets looked down upon that maybe people get a bit of a helping hand who've come through and been a, fo a football person, let's say. But I I do think it's massively undervalued from people who potentially haven't gone through it because it does give so much that empathy of just being able to understand what these guys are going through maybe not at the same level but and even little things of i know just for, speaking from experience if there was a i don't know i was going through a rehab and it was progressing to striking the ball rob get your boots on would you mind just going out because they knew that i could like pass a ball half decent and this guy wouldn't be running all over the all <laughs> over the place collecting my collecting the passes so just little things like that can be such a help, can't it? Go having someone around that's been through it and has half decent touch and a decent range of passing. Yeah, hundred percent. No, I, I, yeah, I pride myself on sometimes like going out with boys who have who haven't been out with before in injuries or individual sessions, and then like seeing their surprise on their face or their reactions when like you ping a long ball to them and they're like, "What the hell? What's the?" Or, or you yes. or you put on a pair of boots that's not like the old Copper Mondiales that the rest of the staff yeah. get, like I've got my own boots and they're like, oh, okay, you, where, where'd you get these from? Um, but it's like you said, that it's just that that um, empathy and that awareness of like sort of what they're going through a little bit. And even th little things like, like I said, it's not at that level, but playing high pressure games, like I've been in situations before, before games in the change room and stuff where you just feel like you feel butterflies and you feel nervous. And I think 99% of the population feels that. And when you're in a professional environment where there's, you know, 40,000 fans at a regular home game and stuff like this. And then you have bigger games and these boys are paid a, a hell of a lot of money to play, um, but they're under so much pressure and they feel so much 
um, stress, sometimes anxiety and real negative emotions and stuff like that. So I think it's also helpful from a, yeah, from a performance point of view, but outside the physical uh, part and outside rehab also that sometimes it's just good to have a conversation, you know, just play a game or just switch off when you're traveling before a big European game or something like that, because yeah, it's, it's you know, what's going on in your head can, can really, can really hinder you or it can really protect you. I think, I think I, lo- I loved a quote from um, Anthony Joshua when I was playing, like if there is no enemy within, then uh, enemies from outside uh, can't really harm you. You know what I mean? And that's, that's sort of like flows into all of that um, mindset before games, also mindset with injuries and stuff like that. So, I certainly value it, but I also see the benefit of someone else coming from the outside with a different perspective. Mm, no, absolutely. So you mentioned re- the rehab side of things a couple of times based on your injuries, saying that you've had probably every injury that these guys have gone through as well who you're dealing with at the club. Just want to explain to us the, the little a little bit about your role at the club and how that's potentially progressed relatively recently based on previous yes. podcast guests. Yes. Um, yeah, so... About two years ago, almost two years ago now, I, I came to Feyenoord, Rotterdam, um, through the the head of medical there, Stein van der Broeke, who's a, a, a close contact of mine, a friend that, I, that I've met through Franz Bosch, actually. And um, he offered me a role here as a rehab physio, half a dual role, rehab physio and performance coach. And at that time, I was still playing football, but I was also working with JP and working, consulting a little bit in rugby and a couple of other sports and stuff. It was a kind of fork in the road and I was like, look, the opportunity is just too good. And I think it's really tailored to, to my skill set and where I want to where I want to go. So um yeah, I took it up and I came came here where I am now in Rotterdam and um worked here for two seasons. Um and then just recently um our head of performance, Rick Cost, who you had on the show previously, um departed to go to the to the US is also also a legend so shout out to Rick but um a position came up and a Belgian guy from Genk uh Ruben Peters and I are now head of performance together so um I still really I really love rehab and and um yeah I don't really like the word rehab but the work that I did in in terms of <laughs> reconditioning and and um and and rehab and mixing that with performance training and sort of working in that gray gray spot or the gray area um, where I don't think it, enough solid work is done across the board in football and in all sports, actually. Um, so I kill, still keep a bird's eye view on that sort of stuff, uh, along with Stein and the the medical stuff. But yeah, now a lot more um, performance oriented and um, working with the all the fit boys, let's say. Yeah. So we're, we're going to have a little chat around Franz and how you've interpreted some of his methods and integrated it into the work at, at Feyenoord and potentially your own thoughts around it. When did you first get introduced to Franz and, and JP and, and the rest of the guys that kind of come with Franz and his methods? Yeah, yeah I, like I said, I met JP when I was like 11, 12 years old and I trained with him as a, as a junior yeah. like um, for my own personal development, yeah, all the way up until when I left to come here basically. Um, and through JP, I got to meet friends when I was at university, actually. So it was quite early on in my tertiary education in Australia. Um, friends came out for some courses in Sydney and, um, yeah, we, we, we met and we did some work together, did some training sessions. And, um, so I was exposed to JP is his, his own type of operator and obviously friends, people know his work reasonably well. Um, but I was exposed to those two things like quite early on in the piece while I also got my education in um, sports science and then physiotherapy in my two degrees at uni. Um, so I was always a little bit um, skeptical about things that you get taught at university and whatnot. Um, and then I was applying those methods to myself basically for a number of years in my um would be budding football career and then also I started to work with JP a lot more in rugby um, individual consults a little bit of traveling and stuff like this Um, and so a a mix of those two guys like yeah uh, I'm pretty blessed to have um, two mentors like that because yeah not many people are lucky enough to have one of them but I've I've had two um, fantastic guys who've yeah tutored me and and got me to a to I, I hope a, a skill set level that um, is is pretty um, pretty solid. You said there, and I picked up on that, that people know Franz's methods reasonably well. 
as in they know of his method, methods well, but um, yeah, actually implementing them is a whole different um, ball game. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know that many people, to be honest with you, who are taking the stuff on board and applying it really well. Uh, obviously, when f- people ask, like friends or myself or Toon Thomason, for example, um, who who applies them really well, like JP is one of the first people that come to mind. And there is people in little pockets in different sports around the world and stuff um, who are quite clever in implementing those things. But if you're working in a in a professional organization, you also know that like there is so many moving parts to what you do with players and how you construct your working, your training week and games and, and stuff like that as well. So um, it was nice to, to work in a, in a little niche area, like I said, like rehab, where you can apply these things with sort of a handful of other individuals, but also not be limited by them. Um, because if you go into a big organization and you want to implement something like Franz's work, which is inherently complex, um, you're going to obviously butt into people with other ideologies who may completely disagree, may not understand, may not want to understand. Um, and then if you're trying to argue with someone or you're trying to make it too complicated or too complex, um, it's just going to fall flat on its face, I think. So um, with the help of Stein uh, at Feyenoord, I think in terms of introducing that sort of uh, framework and that, that style of um, of training and, and um, philosophy, we, we started to ease our way into it with the playing group, get their buy-in first because that's obviously massive um, and then start to branch out from there really. So it was complete coincidence, but um, I feel like it's been a, it's still a work in progress, but I feel like it's been um, pretty successful to date. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of what that framework actually is? And I'm sure that there's, I've got loads of questions for you based on some of the readings that I've done around <clears throat> and listening to you on on uh, other podcasts as well. But it'd be nice for people just to get a, a bit of an understanding of that framework as a whole or as a, as a summary. And then we can use that as a bit of a jumping off point to uh, dive a little bit deeper. Yeah. So, I mean, I suppose I say framework because it's more like you have Franz's body of work there um, that you borrow bits and pieces of at certain times. And I, I think myself also, I'd like to borrow from uh, a bunch of different people's ideas and what I think is valuable, what I've used myself and what I think is research-based um, or evidence-based, let's say. Um, but yeah, like a, a good, I suppose giving you a, an example is probably the easiest way. But um, like in a nutshell, if we have... Um, like a playing group that we have uh, at the moment and we're looking at um, how they move and what's important to them and what's important as footballers and for our, for our head coach. Um, A lot of stuff of this, by the way, is is basically stolen or adapted from work that I've done or been a part of with JP before as well, but it applies to football really well is um, robustness and efficiency. So like robust, are they adaptable? Are they resilient? Can they be well protected from injury? A lot of Franz's work is is about um, um, not perfection, but stability being what the body is interested in um, and looking at like um, from uh, concepts like dynamic systems theory, motor learning, stuff like this, um, pieces of that like attractors and fluctuators where attractors are real stable economical components of movement that you want to encourage. And when you can have passive attractors, which is... Uh, something that's a little bit more dangerous for the body, but easy to fall into versus active attractors. So for example, like when you're running at speed, a passive attractor would be that you, you fall into deep dorsiflexion in it with your heel on the ground. You get obviously like that's easy to fall into because of the, the ankle joint itself, but it's not performance enhancing. It can be risky for injuries. Um, whereas an active one is that as soon as you hit the ground, your heel pops up very suddenly. And then you can have like your, your tissues, like your gastrox, your, your quads and stuff like this, transporting energy and um, using elasticity a lot better. If you ask me like a broad question, like what you said there, you see how quickly it can go down like seven different mm-hmm. rabbit holes sorts of things. But it's all getting, good though. Getting, it's good. Yeah, it's good. getting back to um, what I said about robustness and efficiency, like if I look at that in one specific area of our guys this year, we'll, for example, look at them running, like the, the running motion. What is important there? What are the key attractors that we need in the running cycle for football? Um, can we identify them? Um, can we test them? And can we train to then improve them? Um, and basically, if, if I break it down to something really simplistic and ignore the attractor 
um, based sort of training and talk and stuff like that. If we look at our guys run, we get like obviously our objective measures and stuff, which are quite traditional in, in SNC and in performance. But then we look at them, do movement analysis of them. Okay, do they have um, energy production or force production deficits or issues? Do they have um, more opportunities to store elastic energy and use their elasticity? Or do or can we uh, make differences with error corrections or technical errors like in their running? So obviously you have, you have like technical errors in the running and you have running style. Those things are two slightly different style. You don't need to modify so much. Technical errors can be injury risks, blah, 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 blah. And then we look at those, those three things, um, look at what the limiting factors are for them. More often than not in football, it's the technical errors and the, the error corrections in the running. So that's like your coordination and, and the stuff where Franz's methods come in um, really useful. Um, and then we can allocate training resources to these guys to help improve their running efficiency, to help make them more robust, um, to get them faster, obviously, faster, more agile, etc., um, and to prevent them from getting injury. So we ideally, we have that performance improvement and injury prevention reduction like married together um, completely. And that's the biggest takeaway um, I can see from using Franz's work is he is one of the first or one of definitely one of the earliest people um, preaching that those two things need to be together, you know, injury production, injury prevention um, and performance. They need to, the training for them needs to be cut from the same cloth. Um, so yeah, just, just uh, direct me in, in any direction because I tend to ramble on a little bit, but no, that's good. That That's great. So technical errors in football, from what you've seen, what are the biggest technical errors that you've come across that you could almost group quite a few people together in that, in that bucket? Yeah, well, I'll start by saying that with football, you have um, ball control and then you have body control. And because you have ball control, which is quite complex, uh, the body control is very often poor. And uh, that's... that's uh, stolen directly from Franz as well. And he uses uh, slightly more harsh words, let's say for, for the way that footballers move in general. <laughs> but I completely agree with him. Like um, footballers on the whole are really, really poor movers. Um, I give you an example, uh, like for our guys, for example, um, it was the same when working in rugby with JP with a lot of the different teams, um, like pelvic control in three planes of motion. So that's like in inclusive, but not limited to like your hip lock in particular, linking that pelvic control with your ankles. So the hips and the ankles linking them together. Because um, if you know little bits and pieces of the hip locks, you know, most people know like snatches or wall slides or whatever else. If you're training those things um, over and over and over again, but there's no impacts or there's no linking with the hip, then in my opinion, it's a bit of a waste of time. Um, that can be a massive boost to your running both in acceleration and top speed. Um, then talking about like agility and change of direction and stuff like that, you have um, more abstract sort of principles like uh, joint coupling and hip hinge, which is joint coupling. So for deceleration, and again, in football, like it's it's just if you were to watch even incredibly high level games like at European Championships at the moment, you'd quite often, yeah, if I sit with friends and I watch a football game, he you know, stares at the TV screen and he's like, look at these these jokes, you know, they They've got terrible trunk control. The pelvis is all over the shop. They can't hinge and, and slow down properly. Um, and yeah, if you can't hit the brakes properly, then you, you're probably going to be limited in your in your max speed as well. Or yeah, your, your speed that you can you can hit before you slow down. So I'm I'm just jumping off everything you're saying because there's there's loads of things that avenues that yeah. could go down. So hip lock, that's something that you're seeing all the time. Give us the give us the overall benefits of doing that really well and why people would do it and more but interestingly for me what are common errors that you see when people are trying to implement that yeah i would say hip lock kind of like um almost got blown out of proportion because it, it kind of got like jp took it used it really well with japan rugby it kind of blew out of proportion like what actually it is and like how much value you can get out of it but like I, like I said, I would think of it more in terms of like pelvic control in three planes of motion. So you have like your, your forward and backwards tilt, you have your upwards and downwards tilt, and you have your forwards and backwards rotation. And when, for example, you're, I'm sure friends, there's plenty of videos of him lecturing with this like all over the, the internet at the moment, especially during COVID lockdowns and stuff. But when you're moving at speed like that, 
you, you want an optimum combination of those three movements, for example, when you're striding or when you hit the ground and you, it, you know, your hip recoils back up. And if any one of those movements like collapses too far, for example, too much forward collapse in the pelvis, then all the other three are compromised as well. Um, and it's a little bit the same, like the linking of that pelvis or linking of the pelvis with, with the ankle, like what I spoke about before with collapsing into your, into your heel, into deep dorsiflexion in, in, in running at speed. If you're training those hip locks and, and whatever else, and there is no linking of that with what's happening at the ankle, um, your transfer to, to actually your running is probably going to be um, a little bit, little bit limited. Um, so, so, sorry, Lee, how can people do that? How can people make that ensure that link is, is happening? Yeah, I, th I think um, you probably need to have like a, a what, we, what we do sometimes when, we, when Franz teaches on courses is he has these great lecture slides on like the filter of, of specificity. I would direct people probably to he's, he's, he's actually running more online courses and stuff now for like the details of that. But if you look at like um, the some of the key elements of, of that specificity is, is like the, the motion of the limbs, obviously like how it looks, but what's happening a little bit deeper in terms of like intermuscular coordination, what's happening in individual muscles, which energy system is being used, um, the level of control of movement in the organism and stuff like this. So I would, I would suggest, you know, if, yeah, we're talking about something that could have so many different, um, approaches obviously but if you're looking at improving someone's top speed and for example they're like hitting the ground and the free side of their pelvis is dropping quite a lot say for example on a on a on a forward hop test or a, or a, a single leg uh, counter movement jump you see that and you see when they land you see this aggressive like dip of the free side of the pelvis then you might infer with or you know without <laughs> uh degrees of certainty that then this hip lock can be useful because then you want them to then land and not have this collapse on the free side of the pelvis, but recoil back up, for example, when they're running. And then sort of uh, building your own exercises based off that, where you have the impact on the ground, but also that that free side of the pelvis can't collapse. So it's probably worthwhile like pasting a couple of videos or something into this, into this um, <laughs> podcast. But you see like, for example, you hop off from a box from so I'm standing on a box here, you hop off from a box onto the other leg and then you need to bring your leg up onto a higher box with the free leg. So left leg hits the ground, this right leg is free and in the air and I need to touch my toe onto a box. Then that way, if I can organize my body to finish at that end point up on the box, if the box is high enough, my um, I'll be up on my toe, on my standing leg, so I won't have stayed collapsed on my heel. And if I need to get my foot up onto this box, my free side of my pelvis wouldn't be collapsed down. It needs to raise up pretty quickly. And then you can add more and more pressure to that by yeah, time pressure, like force pressure. You start adding um, things like punches over your head with weights or aqua bags, stuff like this, perturbations to then try to challenge the, the stability of that, that movement pattern more and more. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a bit difficult without visuals and, and, talking yeah. talking at it yeah talking about it over a podcast obviously but um i would say a step back from that is like whatever sport people are working in like what is the what are the limiting factors of of these um of these athletes movements you know so so with the hip lock specifically what common mistakes are you seeing people when they're trying to implement exercises um, I, I did a lot, like I said, I did a lot of stuff with JP working in rugby on it and we, we've, um, discussed it and discussed the progressions of it and ev evolution of it quite a bit. And, um, I think people see like probably what I just spoke about, like a collapse <laughs> of the free side of the pelvis. So it's like, okay, as soon as you land, you need to get it up, get it up, get it up. But to introduce another sort of element that friends brought to the table in terms of motor learning, like, um, clear intention. So knowledge of results versus knowledge of performance, people coaching hip locks and stuff that you see on um, social media, but also people in person and the way that they coach it is a lot of like ex explicit detail on, yeah, that one was really good. That one was really good. But on the one hand, I think if you execute something and you feel stable, it's good movement should feel good for the athlete themselves. And also you have a clear knowledge of the result. Um, so for example, uh, we do like step-ups where they step up, they need to bring their, their free leg needs to step up over a hurdle and they finish on a box, which is higher, like we discussed before. 
but they have like a small lane where they need to land their foot. That's a clear endpoint that they have to hit. If they have to hit this, then too many movements like in the transverse plane where they, they wobble or they collapse and they can't land there, they know that it's it's a non-successful result. Or also you change that intention to be, okay, I want to hit the box very softly or I want to hit the box really hard. And if you, depending on the athlete and the interpretation and also the language, which I've come to figure out, if you, um, some people, if you say, okay, land on this box after the step up really hard, they will hover on above the box for a really long time and then they hit hit hard on the box. And that's what you're looking for, you know, to keep that free side of the pelvis up for as long as you can in that specific in that specific instance. Um, but as, as I, I said before, I think there's, there's too many um, things going on like uh, hip lock walks. I think maybe you've seen the marches or like sliding your hip up and down a wall where there is no impact at the ankle. Hence, there's no time pressure. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's way, way, way too many levels down in intensity. What, from what it could be, you know what I mean? Same with the marches, mm. like doing these marches and stuff like this. It's no problem to do it for a little bit of mobility or recovery or something like this. But if you're using it as a training tool, like you really need to um, start pushing your athletes or clients or whatever it is to their limit to figure out what the what the, the, the limiting factor is for them. We'll come on to that in a second because it's something that's come up a couple of times on the podcast and been so regressed that it's it looks maybe it looks perfect to go on Instagram. And on, on Twitter, because it looks really good, but it's so regressed that it's not having this element of of chaos, uh, this element of ugliness. As a, and I suppose with these things that people see online and then try to replicate in terms of Franz's work, that's maybe a, because maybe they're not fully understanding what the outcome is and what the result is. It gets regressed too much to feel comfortable yeah. to make them feel comfortable that it's that it's doing something because they can see it looks nice yeah. even though that chaotic environment is what is going to actually allow them to progress yeah yeah i i give you i give you a better example so like you're working hip blocks because you identify that somebody at top speed you film them front on you see that their pelvis is, is dropping one side so you're convinced that hip lock or your pelvic control is something that is an attractor that, that you can build with them or it can be can be worked on with them you go back into the gym and you start working on hip locks in one plane of motion uh so it's like a, a, a an attractor at a you have attractors at lots of different levels in the body so like intramuscular level intermuscular spinal reflexes and overall movement patterns so like in running and stuff like this so working on hip locks in you know uh, one plane of the pelvis or like a wall slide is in the frontal plane only it's sort of like a slow and muscular work so it's like breaking it down breaking it down so you regress it all the way and then you do shitloads of those excuse my language shitloads of those and expect that you expect that your your running is going to improve but then you could just go straight onto the road and or road field yeah and you could just uh run across and take it take a dumbbell in like one hand and each stride that you take and you put your foot on the ground you punch the dumbbell up above your head and if you do this, then your stance leg needs to be super stable and your other free hip will come up in response to that because it's like a reflex. So you punch a dumbbell above your head, just when your foot hits the ground and you get a ground reaction force that usually forces you to scissor your legs back really quickly. Or you go onto the street nearby where I live, there's like some, some really old school uh, Dutch roads, which is like wobbly and stuff like that. And you sprint along there. And either you'll collapse deep in your ankle or you'll start to get a really active, stable ankle pattern where you push off and your heel touches the ground very, very briefly. And then you put yourself into an environment where your your overall, your contextual patterns of movement, so you're running at top speed, gets put into an environment that is super challenging and like you said, a bit more chaotic. And then you can watch what kinds of, if, if there is any stability that arises from that or if there's collapse. You know what I mean? And then you're, you're stressing at a much much higher point and you're potentially skipping 10 steps in between where you need to progress from hip locks in the frontal plane to then hip locks with impact to then hip locks with upper body rotation and stuff like this when it may not be it may not be needed and that's the key part with rehab is that when you have for example an ACL uh, injury or something like that you do have to build up with those steps because tissue can't tolerate it yet but in performance yeah you can jump up a bunch of steps and you still might find that 
um, running with the dumbbell punching or running along the, the uneven pebbly road, it's still someone still does it brilliantly. Then you need to find something new, you know, a new stress. I'd I'd like to take that bit of conversation and and take it into the agility angle, not just. Uh, linear speed but in agility as well so just to combine again what we've chatted about for the first 30 minutes how do you dissect what a player or group of players needs when it comes to developing agility developing change direction but also the perceptual stuff that comes along with agility yeah yeah uh i suppose um firstly like without individualization in team sports like football there's always going to be a big limit on what you can achieve. So of course we have like little warm-up blocks at the moment where um, we call them movement skills, where it's 15 minutes, sometimes longer, sometimes broken up, where we're working on some of those uh, key attractors and the whole team does that. But unless you can get individual time, individual um, planning and goals set for what certain guys need, you're always going to be limited, right? Um to get there to that point to see what they need, yeah, then you need movement analysis. And ideally you get movement analysis in context. So just uh, yesterday I was filming our goalkeeper in his goal because he, we, we were having a discussion the day before with him, his keeper coach and myself about the set position for goalkeepers when they're about to make a save or a jump. Um, looking at this is I think super important because you, you see everything in context. You see how he's actually moving in a game or in a game on the training pitch. We also do obviously like bouts of testing. So choose whichever test you want and for whatever reasons you want, um, five meter, 10 meter, 20 meter, 30 meter, 505, uh, agility T-test, wh whatever it is, then you can use your movement analysis there. And probably a good starting point would be, you know, a, f a five meter acceleration or a 10 meter acceleration. Then from there, you, you use that movement analysis. Again, you remove a little bit of the context because they're not playing football, but you still get high intensity actions, which you can break down a little bit. Then if you of course have the time and resources, you can start to look at, okay, this guy is uh, brilliant at 10 meter accelerations. He's very quick. Maybe we can look at change of direction as an issue. This other guy, he's super slow. He collapses in his ankles. He's got a round back when he accelerates and he's got slow times. We need to work on his speed before we start to look at change of direction. Um, and it, yeah, like I said, individualizing that process is key, and it takes a lot of lot of time and a lot of uh, a lot of manpower and a lot of hours at the computer. But um, that's how we 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 go about it here, and that's from Franz and from JP, especially the way in which I think sports needs to go in the future, especially sports like field sports like football. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Lee. So in part two, the favourite part of part two for me is the talk about aquabags. You go on Instagram, you go on Twitter, and there's aquabags being thrown around left, right, and centre. But we get Lee's perspective on how they can be used properly and effectively. So a great part two coming up with Lee. This episode of the Pasty Performance Podcast is sponsored by Black Box Fitness. Black Box Fitness are leaders in performance training equipment and facility design. Black Box are specialists in designing and building performance facilities for sports teams and strength and conditioning coaches. Black Box manufacture and distribute a full range of strength training equipment from their headquarters in Belfast right across Europe. If you want to learn more about Black Box, check out their website blackboxfitness.com or follow them on social media at blackboxfitness. And this episode is also sponsored by Kitman Labs. Kitman Labs is sport's first technology company to offer a complete solution that includes innovative analytics and an advanced athlete management platform that is supported by a team of sports, technology and data science experts with over 200 years experience. Kitman Labs is leading the evolution of sports performance, partnering with over 150 elite teams across the NFL, NHL, MLB, AFL, EPL and Championship Rugby. Through advanced statistical analysis, rigorous scientific research and unparalleled industry experience, they've architected the world's only analytics platform that helps sports teams to truly harness their data and uncover the influences behind performance optimization and injury risk. 
To find out more about Kitman Labs, visit kitmanlab.com or follow them on social media at Kitman Labs. And this episode is also sponsored by Stanta College. Stanta College, led by Dr. Liam Hennessy, provides international recognised qualifications in strength and conditioning and performance science from certificate to master's level. Courses are designed by industry leaders such as Des Ryan and Professor Ian Jeffries, ensuring students and graduates are at the cutting edge of technology and learning the most current methodologies from world-renowned practitioners. Stanta College's unique blended learning approach allows you to take the next step in your career in your own time and at your own pace. Lectures are delivered in an online classroom, while residential workshops provide the perfect opportunity for practical application of your studies with guidance from experts within the field of sports science and performance coaching. With campus locations across Ireland, the UK, USA, India and South Africa, Applications are now open for courses including the BSc in Strength and Conditioning, MSc in Performance Coaching and MSc in Applied Sport and Exercise Physiology. Visit stantacollege.com for more information on how to apply. And now back to the interview with Lee Egger. So when it comes to analysing um, that video, whether it be in a 5 meter acceleration, 10 meter change direction test, whatever it is, yeah. is there any areas and i'm just trying to second guess what people are thinking okay i've got this movement whether it be uh like i say 10 meter sprint five meter sprint there's lots going on no matter how much you slow it down there's lots going on is there any specific tips that you would give people to focus on certain areas that are common errors in football that you can potentially almost tick off like where you would look first what would be your first go-to when analyzing movement in football um yeah it's a it's a tricky one because the reality is is that movement analysis is not for everybody um someone like franz does it like this and it is brilliant at it i'm certainly working on it but i don't have all the answers and and it has limitations up it, it it's it's very subjective um you might say something very different to me and we can argue the back and forth on it but our backup our, our fallback to that is the rest of our objective testing so, for example, you look at a guy running at top speed, you look at the left and the right side differences in um, ground contact or um, how quickly the heel leaves the ground or whatever else. Um, the backup to that is, okay, his, his single leg RSI in the gym on left leg is terrible and that we see the same in his running. And the medical says that he has injuries on his left side. So then, you know, okay, we have hardware issues here. We also have uh, coordination issues in his running. Um, we can then begin to say with, again, not certainty, but... Um, with more confidence that this is potentially what he needs to work on and formulate a plan from there. And it's going back to the movement analysis. It's a, it's a little bit like when you do, um, I use an injury example, when you get an injury, typically, I assume in the UK it's the same, but typically you, you get on the treatment bed, someone assesses you with range of motion and clinical tests and whatnot. Um, then you might go with the same person into a gym or or a certain area where you do single leg squatting, deadlifting, hopping, functional tests, stuff like this. These are also somewhat subjective, you know. Um, and then you might go to a performance coach and you do performance testing, which is anything from squat jumps to, you know, triple hops to broad jumps or whatever else. They give you a piece of information and then you accumulate these pieces of information. But quite often, then you never look at them moving in context. So whether they're in pain or not, um, obviously, if they can't run and you need to analyze them, then that's that's tricky. But if you can look at them in context first and then go back and plug in what you're interested in, I think it saves a lot of time and it's quite different from the, you know, the norm at the moment. Um, your, your main question in that, I'm coming back to it, was, <laughs> yeah, what, what, what things people can look out for. Yeah, as I said, it, it's, it's not for the... It's not for the faint-hearted. Like you've got to spend a lot of hours developing that skill set a little bit. Um, p- people like, um, for example, like Vern Gambetta. Um, I was on a podcast with him and he was talking about like the coach's eye, you know, and a lot of coaches just know these things and know it well. I- I'm all for that too. Like if, if you just have an intuitive, I know this guy needs more lean in his acceleration or I know this guy needs uh, whatever it is in their top speed or they change the direction. Yeah, if, if that's the way you want to go, then that's great. Um, we build little templates so that it's not just me, um, 
telling everyone what it is. They can also look at the template, look at step-by-step progressions, for example, for acceleration, make their own um, uh, remarks, and we can come together and sit and talk about it. I would say if you, if you, the starting point for it is like to see to see a hell of a lot of athletes move. So, you know, if you if you want to watch, if you want to get good at acceleration analysis, like start to see heaps of people doing accelerations. That's what I'm in the middle of at the moment, um, based off Franz's advice, um, and 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 starting real real basic from there. If anyone you know wants any sort of like tips on like, oh, I'm I'm looking at this guy accelerating or top speed, like what are what are three points that I can start with for analysis? Like, yeah, feel free to drop me a message and stuff like that, but. At the end of the day, you already hear from me babbling on so much that this stuff, this stuff is complex, and the devil is in the details quite a lot. So, um, yeah, you, you can't just like film someone, get three points, and say, "Yeah, I've done a, a movement analysis." But yeah, that's probably where you need to start as well. You know, them templates. Talking about the templates. So we have like start and acceleration. We have top speed. We have um, change of direction, like for a five hundred five. Um, and they're just little like check boxes. So things that um, obviously it comes off the back of the work of Franz and Toon Thomas and in particular who are the movement analysis um, go-to guys. Like we do that as consulting for sports clubs and stuff like that through um, Franz Boss Systems. But um, I built it for, for our teams so that if I have 20 guys at once, I can just whiz through real, real quick and say, okay, on the first steps, I'm looking for this. No, no, yes. Um, on the second steps, this. No, 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 yes. You know, it's just like, making things a little bit more efficient for me if I need to look at five guys in two days or, or something like that. Um, I also encourage people to yeah make your own templates like that because, yeah, just because what I see based off my biases that I get from Franz, JP and Toon and stuff doesn't mean that um, that should be what everyone else looks for, you know what I mean? But at least then you add a little bit of like, you, at least you document your subjectivity and then you can add the objectivity in the gym or in, in other testing or in your, your testing numbers. Like you have, you still have a 10 meter time if you time it with, with timing lights, you know. I'm going to stitch you up here a bit because I know I didn't tell you I was going to ask you about this. But can them t- the templates, so for an acceleration, for example, and I know you haven't got this in front of you, but can you give us a little bit of a rundown on what that template, t- sorry, that template may look like and those tick boxes that are, you're trying to get to get a bit of a picture of what these guys are moving like yeah so for example like start and acceleration if you have it you can you can do this to varying levels obviously but um you have start and acceleration you have the video you can take um, snapshots of the video we also have an app that we developed with um friends boss systems for that as well just takes really quick snapshots um i think it's like a dollar on the app store or something like that but i use it to mm-hmm. death i'm pretty sure jp uses it as well and then we just have a little box and it will be like um, different step approaches to acceleration. So I don't want to give away all of Franz's um, hard-earned work. <laughs> but for example, like um, the first step in that is like balance at toe-off position. So like uh, first step, does your swing knee keep rising until toe-off or does it drop before that? As an example, like what is the position of the swing knee as they swing it through? Um, when they hit the ground, do they have good stiffness at mid stance as in the other leg is not dropping real deep. Um, do they have a, a round back and too much or not enough forward lean? There's some examples of check boxes. Cool. Yeah. I like it. Got to protect the IP. 100%. Especially, especially when it's not your own. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Too right. Too right. So I'd like to ask you about, again, coming from Franz's, Franz's, not the latest book, but the book before, but the transfer of traditional strength training to sport. Sorry, Rob. Just get your... Just going back, oh, go back. Just going back to that, if if anyone's Gosh. really interested in like those movement analysis and step-by-step blocks and stuff like that, Franz and Toon are running online courses in Holland and also international courses. I, as far as like COVID and lockdowns and stuff goes, I have no part to play in it and I earn zero money from it. But I would, uh, if, if someone is interested in the stuff that we're talking about, yeah, there's there is no better course to recommend. But you have to understand, like I said, it's a it's going to be a start of a work in progress where you you start to see some things. You go away, you see fifty athletes run, and then you develop your skill set a little bit. So, just a little uh, selfless plug. Love that. Thanks, mate. Um, 
So transfer of traditional strength training for sport. So to, to sport. What's your thoughts around traditional what the traditional model of strength and conditioning looks like versus that that is encouraged or believed in by friends? What's your, where where do you sit? Yeah, I'm a I'm a I'm a half half because I'm a student of Franz's, but I'm also a student of someone like John Pryor as well, who who uses a mixture of both and will will tell you himself, you know, um, through experimenting on numerous different sports and athletes and whatnot. Um, I believe in the sport that I'm working in now, having also experimented on myself, that traditional strength training, like heavy lifting and stuff like that, we don't do much of it. Like, and I don't recommend it for our guys at the club. And I think you start to see a bit more research now on, for example, um, like maximal strength and heavy lifting that it can have a negative effect on your speed. If that's what you're training for, which more often than not for us, it is. Um, it also has other effects as well, like heavy, uh, neural load and DOMS and muscle soreness and stuff that, a lot of young players that come or new players to us aren't used to and can sabotage the rest of their training a little bit. Um, in sports like rugby and um, contact sports like um, like use jujitsu for example or grappling, like if you when you I haven't played rugby yet, but like jujitsu or like rolling, you you go wrestling with someone like this and you really feel the need to improve things like your grip or like your pull or your pushing, like your maximal strength. And I think in those uh, contexts, certainly traditional strength work um, and and maybe um, a mixture of the of the coordination based stuff is more helpful. In sports like rugby, where you're contact heavy, you certainly have a need for um, protective hypertrophy um, because yeah, you need um, body mass to run into body mass <laughs> basically. Um, <laughs> but yeah, as far as we go, I think. The, the, and, and as far as the transfer um, to um, skills of movement, as in like what we were talking about before, acceleration, deceleration, um, top speed, uh, lateral movement, changes of direction, cuts, curves, all these things, I, I think it is for the most part limited. But then again, like I said before, when we're looking at an athlete in a nutshell, do they have uh, options for better force production? better use of elasticity or coordination and error correction in their, in their running movement. And there's certainly a place for all three. And there's certainly times in, in our squad with our boys where um, we've, we've used all three different, different elements, you know, has that come into conflict with any players that have come across to you? Yeah. For the club. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. hundred percent deal with that. I think on the, on like what I said, right at the start is you need player buy-in because without that, like any, um, training approach is going to probably fall flat on its face. I think it's that old, old um, saying like uh, the training program is only as good as, as it's executed or, you know, like a, a shitty training program executed 100 times is going to be better than the one that's executed 10 times. And I really believe in that. Um, but we have guys who um, like want to, uh, want to lift heavy, want to feel a little bit of soreness the next day. Um, just depends, I think, on your relationship with them a little bit. Like for the most part, we have a great group of boys actually that I really get along with all of them without without fail for any of them, which is quite rare in any sporting team. But I have a pretty good relationship with them that um, you can we can sit with them and say, listen, um, I don't know that this is going to be your best way forward for improving this and relate it all, all always back to their goals. Um, but then again, like if some guys like to, you know, do some heavy rocket squatting or trap by deadlifts or something like that. Like if, if it's the right time and it's the right dose, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in and do it with them, <laughs> you know, but <laughs> why, if they feel that it's what they need or it's what they're, they like to do with their body. I think that can supersede what someone like me wants for them or, or is recommending for them for sure. Um, so on the, on that same, um, line of question i guess exercise specificity again coming from franz's book single leg olympic lifting derivatives i know that's something that's quite talked about quite a lot when franz's systems and, and methodologies come into um come into conversation yeah what's your feelings around around that 
Uh, we don't use them very much at the moment with the team. I think it's something where it is a little bit more detailed and to do to, to execute it in, for example, teams, team gym sessions is quite tough. Um, the only person I've really seen do it quite well is JP and he was doing it via things like doing it with plates or doing it with aqua bags where the intention is really clear, get the plate up right above your head, get your body as tall as you possibly can be. So like two cues, you know your, you know your uh, end point and you know your knowledge of result if you can hold it up there for two seconds. Um, but yeah, doing it in big groups is tough. Um, I do think it has quite a bit of value. So if I'm with like one or two guys that I can spend a little bit more time watching them, not queuing them, but watching them, I'll do it. But rehab is the big one where I've used it the most. And that's because of the intimacy in, in the setting that you're doing it in. But it's also like how you can manipulate um, the context that you're using those those single-legged ollie lift variations and stuff. So for example, um, you have the classic like uh, clean to a box. Um, I think like what we spoke about before, it's, it's missing um, a clear intention, uh, enough overload, and yeah, knowledge of result, which kind of goes in with the first one. But say, for example, you have a calf injury, um, you can do like a single leg clean where you do it, hold the bar at your knees, drag it up really slowly and drag it up as slow as you can and then clean the bar up with one leg. And the higher and higher the bar goes up your leg, the shorter and shorter amount of range you have to produce the forces necessary to clean the bar up with one leg, hence the calf, the gastroc and the and rec femme and, and, and its partners and the quads and stuff need to work a much more explosively in a shorter range of motion. And then when you get further on down the track with a calf like that, you can do things where you um, hop off a plate, hit the ground and then do a clean immediately. So then you add impacts um, to it and then you can start to add layers a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think for the most part, heavily bastardized element of Franz's work. Um, and <laughs> Yeah, that's that's I would, I would I've been lucky that I've been able to spend time with people like friends and JP where I've got a good understanding of it and um, been able to implement it in a rehab setting, you know, with one or two guys and sort of refine it, refine it, and see the responses and stuff like that. You mentioned the aquabag there, and there seemed to be a time where every time you went on social media, there was aquabags being thrown around all over the place. <laughs> Again, I'd love to get your thoughts on where they should be used, where they shouldn't be used, why they're used in the first place. Because, like I said, people are using them for every everything going. So, yeah, maybe first, why people may want to use them. Secondly, common errors for people that do choose to, to use them. Yeah, I'm probably guilty of the, the Aquabag plug myself. A lot of my mates back home, like, take the piss out of me for that a lot. But I really, I really like them. I like them for, because I trained with them myself for long periods. Um, and I, I like them because they're bloody robust, like little tools and you can travel. Like I just packed 10 of them today into our van for a training camp next week. Um, they, they're easily manipulatable with the load. But um, the thing, obviously for me, that using Aquabags is you can take it into the setting of the gym. You can take it out onto the field. You can take it elsewhere with you. And it makes something more closed skill, immediately more open skill because you have the movement of the water, shocks around. Um, the body perceives this as like external uh, perturbation, basically, that it needs to cope with. Um, and then this adds more um, yeah, external variability to your movement and makes the environment more chaotic. Hence, the body needs to become more stable for that. Uh, in particular, like you look at something like uh, the functions of, of your core and trunk, especially in sports like football for us here. And you look at like the abdominals and their design structurally and, and probably what they are, um, what they're used for is um, obviously like you have heavy bracing and co-contractions for, for uh, contact and stuff like that. But you also have like absorbing big external forces and still being able to stay within an optimum length so that you can brace absorb those forces, keep going or push back or whatever it is and maintain control of your, your pelvis, which is like the launch platform for, for the running, the running cycle, um, absorb external forces or absorb, 
absorb internal forces. Say, for example, when you're running, your pelvis is in position and your hip flexors are pulling hard on your pelvis. You know, your abdominals still need to be able to stretch and and hold still to allow your pelvis to be steady and allow your, your hip flexors to do work and to, to pull your knees up hard and to, to run hard too. And the absorbing big external forces is also where the aqua bag comes in. So we do heaps of things where we're in different like leaning positions and punching, splashing the bag. The cue is to splash the bag as loud as you can, you know, make as big a sound as you can, but splash out, punch to different targets and stuff like this. Um, that's not to say we don't do, you know, like heavy bracing, uh, core co-contractions work and stuff like that. We, we do like hanging work, um, planking, stuff like this still with either high load or, um, light, lighter loads and, and high time pressure or force pressure. But, um, for, for that sort of stuff, yeah, the aqua bags are, are, are great because you also see as a player, okay, I'm doing things inside where like I'm in a sit-up position, I'm leaning back and I'm punching in different directions. And then I go out on the field, I'm running a straight line and I'm punching in different directions. And there's a little bit there, some familiarity in how you progress from the gym to the field and that those things are linked because they should be, right? I, I don't, I don't want to like um, smash anyone's um, business or products or anything, but like, if you're like shuffling around with mini bands around your knees and then you go outside and it feels absolutely, you know, no connection to that whatsoever inside. Um, I'm not saying you can't do that. Of course you can sometimes for different reasons. But um, for me, that's been personally my experiences of linking the, the, the training feel for the players and also the players that you work with. You say like, remember inside when we did this um, punching with the bags and stuff, now we're going to do the running version of it. Okay, I, I feel you. I get you. I got to splash it loud. Blah blah blah. Um, so yeah, and there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of a lot of hate on it out there, especially. But uh, someone like someone like JP again, I keep harping on about him, but um, the guy has used those products to such great effect in field sport, uh, a field sport like rugby. Yeah, you, if you if you see the guy in action, yeah. You, you'll be uh, running to the to the aquabag web shop <laughs> <laughs> so what's the biggest mistake when people use aquabags i think maybe just throwing it in there like for the sake of it so like um instability for the sake of instability like uh using unstable loads and stuff like that whether it be dangling bands off plates or um having someone manually shock you or something like that um needs to challenge the stability of the system and make the environment, like we said before, more chaotic, body goes more simple. Um, so if that is the case, then yeah. But if you're doing something like strength-wise and you, th- you, you know, you're, you're looking for um, force production or energy production um, or elastic energy return and you're just throwing an aqua bag in there and the force production or the, the bounce in a hop or something like that suffers because the aqua bag is there, then yeah, what's what's the point of it? You know what I mean. Um, so yeah, that that would probably be the biggest thing. But to be honest with you, I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not. For even though you or my mates might think at home, I'm not searching hashtag Aquabags on Instagram every night and seeing <laughs> like, all right, what what's everyone up to? <laughs> I, I, there's heaps of it in all the stuff that I share, but um, for the most part, when I when I um, implement them in sessions, um almost all the time, if you were to come in and stop me in the middle of the session, be like, what's the purpose of this uh, movement? What's the purpose of the aqua bag? I can give you a straight answer or I can give a player a straight answer, which I think is also important. Right, mate. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Just want to do a little roundup and ask you to tell people where you, where people can get to know more about you, more about your work. This is your time to have a couple of plugs in there. <laughs> this is the plug time um yeah i'm not um super active on like social media i would say mainly i just post clips of, of stuff of what i'm up to lately on um, instagram so people can find me on there and twitter um, i have an account but i i don't use it very much um i would say like content wise if people are interested in following as in not asking questions but just following and stuff um speed power play on youtube uh, jp and i upload or at least attempt to upload when we're not super busy some regular content on there um and we have an app that we developed a few years ago which if you want to delve into yeah fundamentals like core trunk strength and, and um, hip lock 
and pelvic control, then there's two modules on there. But otherwise, yeah, if, if, if um, like I said a couple of times, I tend to just babble on. Um, but if anyone wants to make sense of anything that I said, I'm more than happy to, to answer anyone's questions or whatever. I think you're doing yourself a disservice there. Definitely <laughs> doing yourself a disservice. So Definitely. I not worry about that. Definitely Babylon. <laughs> Good well, for a Babylon. Yeah, no, like I say, definitely doing yourself a disservice. I won't worry about it too much of your babbling. It's good, great stuff. So thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much for uh, putting up my stalking over the last couple of weeks. <laughs> and uh, and good luck at camp, good luck at pre-season. And good luck with your first game in Europe in a couple of weeks. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it a lot. It was good to be here. Hopefully we Pleasure. can do it again. Thanks, pal. Speak soon. All right, mate. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Lee. So we've got some great guests coming up over the next couple of weeks from the UK, from America, from Australia. So if you haven't pressed subscribe on your chosen podcast player, make sure you do now. So every Thursday morning, UK time, you will get a leading strength and conditioning coach or sports scientist and get their insights and knowledge delivered straight to your phone or tablet for free what could be better than that so thank you for your support and i'll chat to you next week